Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Good morning and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning we are broadcasting to you live from Washington DC, the US capital, as we count down to the 2020 US presidential election. Will Donald Trump win four more years in the White House or will Joe Biden become the next president of the United States? Shortly we will hear from a former US ambassador to New Zealand who's a close friend of Joe Biden's and I ask him what sort of president Joe Biden would make. He's not going to be a zinger president. He's not going to be at Twitter at three o'clock in the mornings trying to send out zingers. He's going to do the things that the American people need to make the United States a better country. We're going to share a whole range of American voices with you this morning, Republicans and Democrats, Donald Trump supporters and Joe Biden supporters. And I take a trip to the county described as the Trumpiest county in the whole of the United States. They say if you don't like Trump, then get the hell out, pretty much, is what you have around here. But we will begin this morning with domestic politics. And late last night, of course, Labour and the Greens agreed on a confidence and supplier deal which will dictate the next government for the next three years. One News political reporter, Mikey Sherman, is live for us at Parliament this morning where the deal is set to be signed at 11am sharp. Kia ora, Mikey, good morning. What exactly have Labour and the Greens agreed to? Yes, Labor and the Greens have agreed to a cooperation agreement. It is different to the confidence and supply agreement that the two parties had in the last term of government, but it will secure the Green Party with two ministerial uh, appointments. Those two appointments, of course, going to the two co-leaders, James Shaw and Marama Davidson. James Shaw will hold on to his climate change ministerial portfolio while also picking up associate environment. Uh, that role was held uh, by Eugene. Sage in the last term of Parliament. Marama Davidson, she'll be making her ministerial debut uh, into an entirely new portfolio. Uh, she will be the Minister for the Prevention of Family and Sexual Violence. She'll also be picking up associate housing with a focus on homelessness. So those two big portfolios there in areas that the Green Party are passionate about. They'll also be working with Labour on three key areas in terms of policy uh, and that will be on uh, climate change, the environment and of of course, improving child well-being and marginalised communities. Mikey, those provisional results show that Labour already has a significant majority. They don't need the Greens, so why have they agreed to this deal, do you think? That's right. And Jacinda Ardern said yesterday that while, yes, Labour is the first party to, under MMP, have won a big majority whereby they do not need any support partners, she did say that it was important to her to keep with the spirit of MMP, uh, and that was her style of politics. And so that's why we are seeing the Green Party being brought on, if you like. Uh, there is also the political optics of it. Labour will not be wanting voters uh, to be seeing it as one big governing force, if you like. So that's why we're also seeing the Green Party being brought on, but also there is another election in three years' time, so it is good to keep your friends close. Uh, Labour obviously uh, has kept them close, not too close of course, because uh, the deal is less than what the Green Party got last time round, uh, but it will be interesting to see just what the narrative is when they hold their press conference later this morning. And Mikey, is this a good deal for the Greens? 
Well, that's the big question, isn't it? And obviously, you know, we had 150 Green Party delegates meet online yesterday to debate this, uh, this deal, if you like. Uh, those delegates represent all of the Green Party branches from across the country. The meeting started at 4pm uh, and the announcement came slightly after 7, so it was a big, robust discussion. And on the one hand, uh, you will have those members who are happy that the Greens have been brought into the fold by Labour, of course, uh, because they do have that big majority. They are aren't necessarily needed. But then you will have those Green Party members who will be feeling disappointed that Labor didn't offer more for for the Greens, who has been you know, a solid and loyal support partner in the last term of government. So it will be interesting later on today, I'm hoping to speak to some of those older uh, Green Party members, those former Green uh, Party minister, uh, 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 government MPs, if you like, Catherine Dallahanty, Sue Bradford. It'll be interesting to get their takes on this. But uh, of course, it will be a good press conference later on uh, this morning at 11 o'clock. As you mentioned, we'll be able to put these questions to both James Shaw and Martima Davidson and just hear what they have to say on the deal. Karafiwa, na mihi, kia koe. Thank you very much. That is One News political reporter Mikey Sherman live for us at Parliament. That deal being signed between Labour and the Greens at 11 o'clock this morning. Of course, we will have comprehensive coverage at onenews.co.nz and on One News at 6. We will turn our attention to the United States now, and we are just days from what may be the most contentious election in modern history. Joe Biden versus the incumbent President Donald Trump. One insider with a keen eye on the developments in the final days of the race is the former US ambassador to New Zealand. Mark Gilbert was the ambassador from 2015 to 2017 to New Zealand and Samoa. He's a longtime friend of Joe Biden's and a policy advisor in this campaign. I spoke to him at his home in Florida, and I asked him if he thinks Joe Biden can pull off a win. Ambassador Mark Gilbert, kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, good to see you. Can Joe Biden pull this off? Absolutely. He's run a stellar campaign from start to today, although having to finish strong through the finish line over the next few days, he's doing very well put states into play that nobody ever thought would come into play, like Texas and Georgia, Ohio and Iowa, and has a lot of pathways to 270 electoral votes. That being said, four years ago, the polls were looking pretty good for Hillary Clinton. I remember pundits at the time saying Texas could be in play. What makes you think this time is different? First of all, I think the polls were pretty accurate in 2016. Remember, it was exactly four years ago today that Jim Comey made the announcement about the emails. And what we saw during that last week of 2016 is that undecideds broke four to one for, for Donald Trump. We don't see that happening this time. And the popular vote was pretty accurate. You know, Hillary Clinton did win by more than 2% in, in the popular vote. Uh, what's different this time is where she had a lead over Donald Trump, she only was in the mid to upper 40s, where Joe Biden, in most of the polls, has been above 50%. And, and that makes a very significant difference. Uh, when you talk about Texas, um, Texas wasn't really in play last time, although spending time there helps with the down ballot races. But Texas really is in play. You've had a record number of people voting in Texas, and I think Texas is going to be very close. Why do the polls show the incumbent, Donald Trump, doing so poorly? COVID. 
also because of COVID, and lastly, because of COVID. His response to COVID, the ineptitude of the administration, has just shown people why you need competency in leadership. And that's why Joe Biden is, is doing so well. You know, uh, presidential campaigns are always about change, but change is always different. The change from George Bush to Barack Obama was one kind of change. From Barack Obama to, to Donald Trump was a different kind of change. And the reason why Joe Biden is doing well is people look at him as being honest, that he put together a competent government, and that um, he will do the things uh, that need to get done to get COVID under control in the United States. Ambassador, how well do you personally know Joe Biden? Well, we started as acquaintances and, and then became friends. Uh, we've known each other for almost 17 years. And I got to know him really well uh, during the reelect for the 2012 um, presidential campaign and got to know each other really well during the second Obama administration. And as How you know, he came to, to visit us in New Zealand. How much have you been involved in his election campaign? I started with the campaign about four months before he announced. So um, it's my second full-time job. In your personal experience, what, what's Joe Biden like as an individual? Just what you see on TV. He is kind, he's empathetic, he really cares about people, and he believes that if we all work together, we can have a better country. Uh, he has a history of working across the aisle in the, um, in the Senate. Um, when Barack Obama needed someone to speak to members on the, on the Republican side of the aisle in Congress, he always sent Joe Biden. And he really believes that working together, you can get so much more accomplished. Well, that being said, sometimes he sounds inarticulate. He, he struggles with his talking points. He, he struggles to land zingers. Is that likely to hurt him? No, because he's not going to be a zinger president. He's not going to be at Twitter at three o'clock in the mornings trying to send out zingers. He's going to do the things that the American people need to make the United States a better country. And I think that's what's critically important. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of times politicians get elected because they land better zingers, you know, that are, you know, pre-packaged and so on. What you want someone in the room who has met more foreign leaders than anyone else in the United States. And it is that depth of experience that you want. Uh, I remember when the vice president came to New Zealand and we were discussing um, you know, with the current government, with MFAT, about the bilateral meeting. And I asked to have the meeting be significantly longer than what, what it was scheduled to be. And I said, please, this will be the most informative meeting that you've ever had. And that meeting, which lasted over an hour and a half, there wasn't one person who came out of that meeting not saying, boy, did I really learn a lot. And they asked the vice president questions about everything in all parts of the world. No notes, not pre-prepared, and he was able to talk to each and every one of them. That's the kind of person that you want leading the United States. And that's why I believe 
if he wins on Tuesday, which I believe he will, that he'll be a great president. How do you see Election Day going? Is it likely we'll have a result on the night? I believe it's possible. You know, politics in the United States, how votes are counted, you know, at the county level, the state level, is different in almost every state. So it really depends on how those states break. You know, there are, there are interesting scenarios. It could be as close as this. Uh, Joe Biden wins every state that Hillary Clinton won. He wins back Wisconsin and Michigan and wins Arizona, which I believe he's going to win all three. Then he wins the congressional district where the city of Omaha is in Nebraska. And that would get him to exactly 270 electoral votes, making it the closest electoral election you know, in our lifetimes. That being said, I still believe he has a good chance to win Florida. I believe that he will win Pennsylvania. He is neck and neck in Ohio, in Iowa, in North Carolina, Georgia, and Texas. So he has so many more paths to 270 than Donald Trump has. And, and that's why I believe that he will be our next president of the United States. You returned to the US after your tenure in New Zealand in 2017. In your eyes, how has America changed during Donald Trump's presidency? Not for the better. When Nancy and I came back to New Zealand in, um, I think it was March of 2018 with President Obama, and although we had seen other family members, we hadn't seen him in person in more than a year. And he asked Nancy that question what she thought, you know, being back from New Zealand. And the way Nancy, and, and I'm gonna invoke my wife in answering this question, is that she said, we left, it was one country, and we came back to an entirely different country. And as you've seen, the politics here have gotten really bad. Uh, it is more partisan than any time in, in my lifetime. And my hope and my goal and the reason I've been a part of what Joe Biden is trying to accomplish is that I believe that he was the only one who could at least get us started back on that path. I think of all those multilateral institutions the president has railed against, the likes of the UN and, and the WHO, as a former ambassador, how do you feel America's role in the world has changed under Donald Trump? Right, so he, he doesn't believe in multilateral institutions. And it was one of the great things working with the government of New Zealand is New Zealand is one of the biggest proponents of multilateral uh, institutions. And I know that that's what Joe Biden wants to do. He wants to re-engage with the Paris Climate Accord. Actually, he wants to do more than what was done in Paris. He wants to be um, more thoughtful and um, more coherent about how we deal with NATO and multilateral institutions uh, all across the board. So um, I think you'll see the United States with a Joe Biden victory is being much more engaged in the world, you know, versus this America first and American disengagement. What would a Joe Biden presidency mean for New Zealand? As a Five Eyes member, as a member that, you know, we 
train together. We do military exercises together. Uh, we work together on multilateral issues. I, I just see that getting back to where I believe we were, which I thought was a very good position uh, when I left New Zealand on Inauguration Day 2016, 2017. That is Ambassador Mark Gilbert. Coming up, I'm going to take you on the road. Two different counties, two very different Americas. I go with what I see and what I hear, and anybody in this world that wouldn't vote for Donald Trump, there's a, a shrink for that. This is Grant County, West Virginia, the Trumpiest county in the Trumpiest state, where locals are confident the president will score another upset. And this is Prince George's County, Maryland, with one of the largest African-American populations in the US. Early numbers suggest African-American voters are heading to the polls in far greater numbers than four years ago. So what influence will their vote have? Hoki mai e te welcome back to Q&A. We are broadcasting a special program to you this morning, live from Washington DC, the US Capitol, as we count down to the 2020 US presidential election. And when the votes are tallied on Wednesday, there will be no prizes for guessing which way West Virginia goes. Four years ago, the state supported Donald Trump more than any other state in the US. And in coal country, his supporters are picking another big upset. Pistols and politics. At Tri-County Firearms in Petersburg, West Virginia, everyone shoots from the hip. Do people talk politics in here very much? Yes and no. There's not much politics to talk about. They say if you don't like Trump, then get the hell out, pretty much, is what you have around here. <laughs> I think it's going to be a landslide anyway. I mean, we, we heard the same thing with Hillary when they said that she was going to beat him and all that. But you say Hillary? Hillary. Yeah. Why do you say Hillary? Kill those guys in Benghazi because she was too lazy to get up and do something. In this corner of America, Donald Trump isn't controversial in the slightest. He's a saviour. I don't watch the news, I don't watch the polls. I go with what I see and what I hear, and anybody in this world that wouldn't vote for Donald Trump, there's a, a shrink for that. Up the road, we met Raymond Herrick, who's been shaken by the virus. Do you know people who've been affected? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I know several people who's passed away from it. They were good friends of mine, and of course they were elderly and had health conditions. But the White House's handling of COVID-19 hasn't really dampened Raymond's confidence in the president. But I feel that you know Trump has done a good job up until now, but this pandemic has really hurt everybody. It really has. It really hurts everybody. Do you think that, that Trump bears some of the responsibility for the pandemic? Well, yes, I think... You know, he needs to step up a little bit more in name-calling and back and forth between other candidates and things. Just, you know, just concentrate on the pandemic. Concentrate on helping America. In 2016, Trump's winning percentage in West Virginia was higher than in any other state. And it was higher in this county than any other county. This is the Trumpiest county in the Trumpiest state in America. 98% white and very dependent on one industry. Trump's for coal. He's for, uh, you know, West Virginia. A lot of people from West Virginia like Donald Trump because he's for coal. Travis Borer worked in the nearby coal mines until they cut production. 
But now, with Trump as president, some of his friends from the mines are going back underground. Yeah, there's a lot of guys I work with is laid off and stuff, and they're going back to work. I see them post on social media all the time that they're going back to work. West Virginia's biggest um, industry is coal, and every other president is looking to get rid of fossil fuels and, and energy in different ways. Um, and without coal, West Virginia's not on the map anymore. Yeah. We'll be a very poor state. At Tri-County Firearms, the guys see a thriving energy industry as key to their own security. And only one candidate digs coal. Does anyone ever come in and say, hey, you guys should consider voting Joe Biden? I would not want to be that guy. <laughs> that would be real similar to the, the UPS guy when the gun shop first opened, when he came in and didn't know what to do with the guns, and he opened the door and said, I got a gun, and everybody drew on him. Be that same type of guy. Is that what happened? Yeah, he says, I got a gun, and we didn't know what he was talking about. In one sense, it's probably not a bad thing that everyone here agrees. There's a special that's arrived here just in time for the election. This isn't loaded, it's been cleared and checked. It's a Fusion 45 caliber handgun. Trump 2020. Keep America great. The gun, they reckon, is a big shot. It makes a lot of noise. Not, these proud West Virginians say, entirely unlike their candidate. And from Grant County to Prince George's County, Maryland, PG County as they call it, is the largest African-American majority county in the whole of the United States. Now in 2016, African-American voters overwhelmingly supported Hillary Clinton, but they didn't turn out with quite the same force with which they supported Barack Obama. In the end, that contributed to the Democrats losing the White House. But this time round, for the 2020 election, Democrats are optimistic it'll be a different story. Prince George's County is the largest African-American majority county in the United States. And this week, tens of thousands of people here have cast an early ballot. I've been here and I've been talking to people and they're here. Some people, I had one man today told me, and I had to take a picture of him, he was 66 or 68 years old. He had never voted before, but he voted today because he definitely wanted to get Trump out of that White House. This is a deeply blue part of Maryland. The vast majority of voters here are not fans of Donald Trump. How's the Donald Trump presidency been for African Americans in the US? Uh, in the country, he has really helped this country see that we still have a long way to go. Bob Ross is the head of the local NAACP. Yeah, it broke down the relationship. Now, I'm 76 years old. And I, I remember when we had to ride on, on the back of the bus, segregated school. I started out in a one-room school in Amelia County, Virginia. And I watched the progress of African Americans moving here since 1965. Because the March on Washington, which I attended, was for jobs and justice. Since he'd been in, in, in the White House, He's taken away that and reversed this and had pitted people against one another. Of course, that's not the message the president pushes. Nobody has done more for the black community than Donald Trump. And if you look, with the exception of Abraham Lincoln. But in just the last few days, American streets have once again seen protests and violence. We still have the police violence against the majority of black men versus the white counterpart in respect. Um, and then, of course, you have the um, militia groups that are becoming more bold, emboldened uh, behind what Trump's rhetoric has been over the past four years. In 2016, black voters overwhelmingly supported Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. But compared to the previous election, when Barack Obama was on the ticket, several million didn't vote. 
That drop in support contributed to the Democrats losing the White House. What would a Joe Biden presidency mean for African-American communities in America? It means hope, restore education. Uh, as a matter of fact, we don't feel like we will have to live, to live in fear uh, of our neighbours. In the primary campaign, it was candidate Joe Biden's support in black communities that lifted him from a slow start to victory. I hope he brings change. Um, he's really given us a light that maybe things can be different for our country. You know, we went from having the first black president to, to this. <laughs> so I'm hoping that he can provide us with the change that we all want and need so much. Tweeting at the TV doesn't fix things. Watching TV all day doesn't fix things. Making stuff up doesn't fix things. And in the final days of the campaign, Biden's former boss is doing what he can to give black voters the hope that defined his presidency. As an African-American woman, to see just a black man of colour make it to the office does so much. Inspires us that in a time when we've never seen anybody our skin colour make it there, that maybe we could make it. Maybe my child can make it to president. Maybe my cousin can make it. And it doesn't matter what skin tone we were. So... I don't know what else he's done for us, but I know just the fact that seeing someone my color in office gave me so much hope that maybe this world isn't against me, you know? So that's how I feel. <laughs> in Prince George's County, optimism is once again daring to show its head. And the message here is simple. Joe Biden isn't Obama, but he's Obama's loyal lieutenant. And he's a vast improvement on Trump. Your one vote can counsel. Don't think you need to sit at home. Get out here because your vote could be the one that gets him out the White House. Thank you. Coming up on Q&A, we'll share my interview with Republican David Frum. He's a former senior advisor to George W. Bush. He thinks that Donald Trump will lose the election, but he's not ruling out a contested result. Yeah. What would that mean? Now, the idea that Donald Trump would try to hold on to power through some technicality in the face of that kind of massive popular repudiation. It invites politics to move to the streets where we never want politics to be. So I'm thrilled to be here in my, our home state, Florida. I love this state and I love the people of this state. And five days from now, we are going to win Florida. We are going to win four more years in the White House. That is President Donald Trump speaking at Florida, which is, of course, a key battleground state once again in this year's election. My next guest is a longtime Republican and one of Donald Trump's most strident critics. David Frum is a former senior advisor to President George W. Bush. He's credited with the phrase axis of evil used to describe Iran, Iraq and North Korea. These days, he's a writer and editor for The Atlantic magazine. His latest book, Trumpocalypse, lays out his plan to fix the divisions in America. I met up with him at Washington's National Cathedral, where he told me Donald Trump's election prospects are grim. Why do things look grim? Pandemic, economic depression. But President Trump was in trouble even before the pandemic struck. 
President Trump has been the most consistently unpopular first-term president in the history of polling. There has not been a day since he was sworn in when he reached 50 percent approval in any reputable poll. President Trump is constantly telling you how great things are going for him. He is a big salesman. But that shouldn't obscure the fact that he was pretty unpopular even before all of this happened, and especially unpopular with groups most likely to vote, the college-educated, college-educated women especially. What can we learn from the number of Americans choosing to vote early? Early voting has been a gathering trend for a long time in American society, but surely it is a response to the, the risks of pandemic. People are taking safety precautions in their own lives, and maybe they don't have a lot of patience for a president who's told them not to take safety precautions. Your criticisms of Donald Trump as president have been comprehensive. Why have so many Republicans supported him? Well, the Republican Party was shocked by his success in 2015 and 2016. And when people are shocked, they don't always make wise, long-term decisions. Um, there seemed to be an opportunity to grab for power, and not a lot of weighing of what this would mean for the future of the party. Um, Republicans scored some partisan successes in the first two years of the Trump presidency. They got the big tax cut through that they wanted, and they've confirmed a lot of judges. But compared to what is coming, uh, those gains are going to look pretty puny. And I think in retrospect, a lot of Republicans are going to ask themselves, was it worth it? When you say what is coming, do you mean a Joe Biden landslide? A Democratic win in 2020 means more than just a personal win for Joe Biden. Um, 2020 is a census year in the United States, and that means 2021 is redistricting year. Uniquely in the United States, it's not the people who choose the politicians, it's the politicians who choose the people. Politicians draw their own constituencies. And the politicians who do that are the state politicians. They draw both the federal and the state boundaries. Republicans had a big win in 2010, and so they wrote very favorable rules for themselves in 2011. And that's one of the reasons that the Republicans had kind of an artificial advantage in the 2010s. Well, it looks like the Democrats are now going to do unto the Republicans in 2020 and 2021 what the Republicans did unto them. So you're going to see a new map of American politics in which states like Georgia and states like Texas and states like North Carolina become competitive, not just the old map of the red states and the blue states. There are going to be a whole lot of new purple states in the southeastern United States and the southwestern United States where there are a lot of people with college educations. Has the last four years made you feel politically homeless? My days in active politics are, were a long time ago. Um, I've made my life for uh, a long time as a writer and journalist. And maybe writers and journalists shouldn't have political homes. Uh, or maybe the people, maybe your home is with the people who read your work and you owe them the best account and you can't. Um, I, I think Donald Trump has been um, a dreadful thing in so many different ways. It's hard to enumerate them all. He's been a dreadful thing, you know, morally and ethically. Um, he's been a dreadful thing for the party politics that I happen to favor. But the thing I worry about most, and maybe the thing to talk to a New Zealand audience about, is what he has meant for America's standing in the world. And, and here's the real damage. When I worked in the George W. Bush administration almost 20 years ago, the American economy was about six times the size of the Chinese economy. Even during our last financial crisis, a decade ago, the American economy was still three times the size of the Chinese economy. Now, depending on who's counting, the Chinese economy is 60 to 80 percent the size of the United States. It's too big to bully. And if we are going to build a world that encourages China to be um, a good global citizen, uh, to be a responsible partner, uh, to uh, respect international norms and values, not to steal intellectual property, not to shepherd people into concentration camps, uh, we are going to need to build a whole 
system of partnerships. The United States probably never could do it alone, but it certainly can't do it alone now. And President Trump's idea of an America alone that just barks orders at the rest of the world and expects them to be carried out, it's going to fail. And it's going to fail with very serious implications, not only for the United States, but all our friends. If Joe Biden wins, how quickly can the course be changed? At this point, it's not a matter of changing course. It's a matter of um, building something new. Um, look, given the fact of the size and power of China, you can't return to the way things were in 2001. We are going to have to build new kinds of partnerships uh, that include not just comfortable and familiar friends like New Zealand, like Australia, like the EU countries, like Great Britain. We're going to have to build new partnerships with India, with the Philippines, with Vietnam, with Indonesia. And that's going to be hard and awkward work because um, we don't have a history with them of partnership in the way that we do with some of the more familiar friends. Um, so it's going to take a lot of creativity. You can't simply turn back the clock to 2016 or 1999. Uh, you have to build new structures of peace, new structures of trade for a new era in which China is on its way to being an equal of the United States. What happens if there's a contested situation? You know, it's, it's very easy to imagine scenarios where things can go very bad very fast. Um, prolonged trouble in the courts, instability. Um, but the background to something going wrong is this. If as many as 150 or even 160 million Americans vote, and if the polls in all their averages are more or less correct, we're looking at a Biden advantage in the popular vote of anywhere from 10 to 16 million votes. Now, the idea that Donald Trump would try to hold on to power through some technicality in the face of that kind of massive popular repudiation, it invites politics to move to the streets, where we never want politics to be. You know, through the first three and a half years of the Trump presidency, things were pretty quiet, pretty orderly, pretty legal. Um, we had one big uh, march at the beginning, the famous Women's March, where not one person was arrested even for littering. Um, but it, since the summer of 2020, we have seen politics move into the streets, and that's not, politics has often been chaotic, often lawless, sometimes even violent. We do not want to see more of that. But that's it lurking in the background, that Trump is going to be confronted with the fact the American public is massively not on his side. It massively wants him to go. Um, and the, the president's desire to hold on to power by force, by violence even, um, that's going to be hard to stand in the face of this massive popular mandate against him. Joe Biden has a line where he says a one-term Trump presidency represents an aberration in American history, but that a two-term Trump presidency represents a fundamental shift. If Biden wins the presidency, is that the end of Trumpism? Look, it's not the end of Trumpism because Trumpism is a global phenomenon. We have it in almost every developed country, some version of it, and we have it in many of the emerging economies. Brazil and Mexico have their own versions of this rejection of the norms of liberal democracy, of this rejection of scientific knowledge, um, of, of this sense of grievance against the modern world. It's, it's just, it's part of the modern world that there are people who are aggrieved against the modern world. So it won't go away. But the, ta the task of politics isn't to banish difficulties. The task of politics is to contain difficulties and manage difficulties. You always have them. But um, if we can put American society back onto a rule of law footing, um, back onto a footing where the majority govern again, which they have not been doing for the past four years, um, where there's some limits and restraints on the things the president can do and say, both in law and in practice, um, we'll be a lot better off. One of the things that often baffles people looking at American politics from the outside is the structure of the Electoral College. 
does the college need to be reformed in order for America to be a true representative democracy? America has a great advantage that it is the oldest continuously functioning constitution on earth and has the great disadvantage of being the oldest continuously functioning constitution on earth. There's a lot of lumber in the attic that when you, when you built the house in 1787, that lumber is still going to be there. Um, there's no banishing the Electoral College, but there are things we can do to make the Electoral College less disproportionate. The real vice of our system is um, the uh, lack of supervision of abuses of voting rights in the states. Um, beginning in the civil rights era, that the country made a commitment to ensuring that all of the citizens, even those who are not locally wanted, even the voters who are not locally wanted, they would have their right to vote. Since in the past 10 years, 15 years, the courts have stepped away, the Federal Department of Justice has stepped away. We need to step back and to say, um, you cannot compete by preventing people to vote. There are lots of ways to compete. You can raise more money. Uh, you can come up. You can recruit candidates. Lots of things you can do to gain an advantage. But stopping unwanted voters from voting—that's out. What's the future of the Republican Party? The Democratic Party came back from being on the wrong side of the Civil War. The Republican Party came back from being on the wrong side of the Great Depression. Uh, parties recover. Um, they are resilient. It can take a while. In every developed country. Um, there's a party that is more aligned with business, with private enterprise, with people who work for salaries rather than for wages, um, with uh, people who work in the private sector, not the public sector. We need one of those. That's my party. Um, and uh, what we have to do is find a way to make that party culturally modern, ethnically and economically inclusive, um, and environmentally responsible. And then we, we, there, there are lots of things for Republicans and Democrats constructively to fight over. Should we to deal with climate change um, by putting some taxes on and letting the private economy solve the problem, or should we regulate and issue commands? Um, should we uh, try to um, balance, uh, should we try to raise wages by identifying places where uh, monopolistic groups take rents out of the economy and suppress the natural dynamics of the market, or should we redistribute and subsidize? Those are important arguments. We're moving toward, as we move toward universal health coverage, do we think there's a place for profit and private initiative in the provision of health care, or do we think the state should do it? Those are all important and powerful arguments that we see in every developed country. What we shouldn't be debating is whether or not the president has a right to lie and to break the law. That is Republican David from his latest book is Trumpocalypse. After the break, Donald Trump delivered a big win for many evangelical Christians this week. Another conservative justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. I speak with a young woman voting for the first time who tells me why the pro-life cause will decide her vote. Tēnā koutou, welcome back to Q&A as we broadcast live to you from Washington DC, the US capital, as we count down to the 2020 US election. In 2016, more than 80% of evangelical Christians in the United States voted for Donald Trump, and this week he delivered them a big prize, the confirmation of another conservative justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. That means the conservative majority on the all-powerful court is now six to three, a so-called supermajority. Now, I was at the Supreme Court as news of the confirmation came through, and just a few minutes after that historic moment, I spoke with 20-year-old Autumn Lindsay a spokesperson for the Christian group Students for Life. 
It's important to me, I think, first, because Amy Coney Bear is such a phenomenal role model. I think she's a feminist icon. I mean, she can stand there and say, I didn't sacrifice my career, I didn't sacrifice my religion, I didn't sacrifice my family, and I didn't sacrifice my career. She showed that women can do it all, and I think that it's so inspiring to see somebody who's so bold in her convictions and yet accomplished so much. I mean, she's being appointed to the highest court in the nation. Uh, what an accomplishment and what an icon to feminists and conservative women and also just the fact that she is so boldly pro-life is really exciting for us as the pro-life generation. How do you feel about the process for this confirmation? We are just days from the election and many people have said this is too late for a justice to be appointed to the Supreme Court. I think first they're saying that because they know what this means. They know with another pro-life justice on the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade is on the line. But when we look at whether or not it's constitutional, there's no argument about that. It is constitutional. Uh, I think people were just trying to stall it because they don't like her and they don't want to see her on the Supreme Court. But I don't think that there's anything wrong. And I think that this shows how important elections are and how important voting is because we've been able to get three pro-life justices with Trump in office, which is huge. Should appointments to the Supreme Court be this political? See, that's what's interesting is, and what I love about Amy Coney Barrett is she has said, I will not let my personal convictions affect my ruling in the Supreme Court. Because we needed to think about what the point of a justice is, right? So, so how do you know that she's pro-life? Pro Right, and I think that by her past judgments in different courts, right, that she is clearly pro-life, but she has said she is going to judge based on what the Constitution says, and she's going to acknowledge science. And I think that that's where it comes, is people are saying that this is political, right? She's politically pro-life. But I think the reality is the pro-life movement is rooted in science. Life begins at conception, and that's a scientific fact that's proven. And so I think that's where it needs to come in, and when do human rights begin, and do we protect all human beings? And I believe that she will protect life under law. There will be people who dispute that definition of life. How will you feel if Amy Coney Barrett makes a pro-choice judgment? I believe that when it comes to Roe v. Wade, right, that's the kind of the case that's on the line. And first of all, Roe v. Wade was decided you know, I mean, I don't know if you know exactly how it was, but Jane Roe, Norma McCorvey, was the woman involved. Um, and not only was she, did she not have an abortion, but there was many parts of the case that were flawed. And I think that's, that's a reason that it needs to come back to the Supreme Court. But I think it really comes down to, again, you know, 98% of scientists say that life begins at conception. And I think that that's what we need to hold on to and not necessarily make this political, but make it a human rights issue that life has to be protected under law. And that's why we're excited because I think that she will acknowledge that. Again, I will just acknowledge there will be people who dispute that. Why is Roe v Wade so important to pro-life campaigners? Well, I mean, right now, Roe v. Wade has kind of been the law of the land, right? That's what legalized abortion in America in 1973. Uh, and so with an overturn of Roe v. Wade, it's not going to completely abolish abortion completely. It's kind of the first step because then it's going to go down to the states. So there is still work to be done, but we believe that Roe v. Wade should be overturned. Um, and we're hoping that we have the opportunity to see that in America, to see a post-Roe generation. You're 19 years old. 20. Just turned 20. Okay, I sorry. turned 20 while I was here. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you. You're 20 years old. Mm -hmm. This is your first presidential election. Have you decided who you'll vote for? I have, and I'm excited to vote. Um, I'm voting for President Trump. Not ashamed to say that. And not only because I believe that we should vote pro-life first. That's the first reason I'd be voting for him. But I also agree with his policies. I think that a lot of people are not willing to vote for Trump because they don't like his personality. But I believe that policy is much, much more important than personality, which is why I am happy to support him.
Is Donald Trump a good Christian? You know what? I think that nobody would technically be a good Christian. I don't think that there's anybody who's going to be um, somebody that we should follow in a spiritual way. I don't think that that's necessarily the point of politics. No, he's, he's not the Messiah. But, right, but I mean, exactly. <laughs> this is a man who's had affairs with porn stars, a man who was caught on tape bragging about grabbing women by the vagina. How does that sit with you? I think what it comes down to is we need to look at, first of all, what's the alternative? Joe Biden is not a victorious candidate who's, you know, I mean, look at what he's done, right? There's a lot of things that you could pull up from Joe Biden as well. I don't think any of them are necessarily role models for how we should live our life, but I think... What, what, what behavior of Joe Biden's would compare to bragging about grabbing women by the vagina? I mean, there's several uh, accusations for sexual assault against him, but, and but, I mean, Kamala he, Harris saying it though, has he? Right, I mean, but I mean, Kamala Harris, his VP pick, even admitted and said he is a racist um, and I believe his accusers. And so I think that that's something that shows his character as well. Um, but I think regardless of those things, people could argue back and forth about the personalities of the two candidates. But we need to look at the policy and what they're going to do to America and who's going to protect life. And I think that it's really inspiring too because there's a lot of people that don't agree with Trump, but they're willing to vote for him because he has proven to be the most pro-life president we have ever seen. Um, in this country and he's boldly pro-life and I think that that's what we need to look at what his policy is and how he's going to direct this country. Do you think Donald Trump truly is pro-life or do you think he's taken this position as a matter of political expediency? I think that there could be a lot of debate for that, right? But all that matters is whether or not he's putting into law, pro-life laws, and whether or not he's going to keep his promises uh, in protecting the unborn. He's boldly and uh, you know, outspokenly pro-life in terms of his policies. And it's not only that, you know, a lot of people will say, well, he's just saying he's pro-life, right? Somebody who's not pro-life would not do the things President Trump has done for the pro-life movement. He was the first president to ever speak at the March for Life, and he has passed numerous uh, legislation to protect life in this nation. Everywhere you look in America at the moment, there are massive divisions. Does that worry you? Um, I think that it's something that we're going to see, right, for the next four years and for the next forever. There's always going to be two sides of it. Um, but I think that, you know, that kind of comes with elections, that comes with two different parties that are kind of clashing and fighting. You go to the White House and there's protesters, you go to the Supreme Court, there's protesters. I think that right now that is kind of um, just the environment we're in this close to the election. That is Autumn Lindsay from the group Students for Life. Now, Autumn mentioned vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris and an accusation of racism against presidential candidate Joe Biden. A quick fact check, Kamala Harris questioned Joe Biden in one of the uh, Democratic Party debates about his relationship with two segregationist senators when Joe Biden first came to the Senate here in the 1970s. But she prefaced it in that debate by saying, I do not believe you are racist. It is true, however, that there is an accusation of inappropriate behaviour from a former staffer against Joe Biden. He has denied any bad behaviour. After the break on Q&A, an expert on militia groups on the left and the right assesses the likelihood of violence around the election. It's armed people in the streets facing off against each other. That we did not see four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, uh, or even really since the 1970s in the US. Hoki mai e te whanau. Welcome back to Q&A. You know, it has been 
extraordinary over the last couple of days, being here in Washington DC in the US capital and seeing buildings being boarded up as business owners anticipate the likelihood of violence around this election. With tensions mounting, there is concern this election could be a flashpoint for violence from the left and the right. And I spoke with US terrorism and security experts, Dr. Seth Jones, who told me he's already concerned with what he's seeing. I think what's concerning is that we are seeing uh, a fair amount of uh, violence coming both from uh, extreme far-right groups and organizations as well as um, some limited violence coming from far-left organizations. According to our data, about 67 percent, about two-thirds, is coming from white supremacists and other organizations and about 20 percent from far-left groups. So. Of particular concern is the fact that we're seeing some of those groups and organizations face off against each other in cities. And I think that's where we're looking at how things evolve over the next couple of days and weeks. How different is that to other elections or to normal times outside of election season? Well, I think when we look at other elections, there's always uh, differences in views. Uh, there, have, there has been some violence politically in the past. What's different this year is this combination of um, uh, the racial issue that has uh, resurfaced again in the U.S., COVID and the lockdown, and the broader protests we've seen in American streets. And what that's done to the violence levels is it's brought people that are armed into the streets that have faced off against each other. We call it the security dilemma. It's armed people in the streets facing off against each other. That we did not see four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, uh, or even really since the 1970s in the U.S. How do you categorize a group as being extremist or militant? Well, what we're looking at is violence. Um, so there are many groups that are extremists and have uh, extremist views of things like uh, white supremacy. What we're particularly concerned about, though, is when that crosses a line into violence or the threat of violence. And I think that's what's particularly dangerous in the elections right now is uh, it's what we saw recently with um, individuals from a militia organization in Michigan and Delaware that were plotting an attack against the governor of Michigan. That crosses a line from having anti-government views or uh, in some cases it may be white supremacist or anarchist views. That crosses a line into violence and uh, that's what's concerning to us. So two-thirds of those militant groups are white supremacist? No, what we're what what we're uh, what we categorize when we uh, looked at the number of uh, terrorist attacks in 2020, uh, three quarters of those attacks or plots have come from white supremacist and like-minded uh, organizations or groups. So it's it's the terrorist component, which is violence or the threat of violence. So it's. It's, it's a little bit more specific than just extremists. Why are those groups in particular and, and that ideology so present right now? We see the, uh, the violent far right, including white supremacists, have been um, very active on digital platforms. We've seen them also respond to um, a number of broader issues. Immigration is probably the most significant. Um, they've got connections with uh, far-right organizations in other countries. We've seen them reach out in Australia, New Zealand, 
Europe. So there's a broader connection that we see with the with the violent far right. And then third is there is some politics involved in this. We saw growth in the violent far right under the presidency of Barack Obama, who's black, and that has that has uh, continued under President Trump in part for what they take to be an affinity for him. I mean, it's it's more than just a coincidence when the Rise Above movement, based out of San Diego, white supremacist organization, they called themselves the Trump and Kriegers, or fighters for Trump. They affiliated themselves uh, with him. So I think that those those explanations are partly why we're seeing what we're seeing right now. In your eyes, what is the worst case scenario? I think the worst case scenario is um, is a uh, a Republican presidential victory that leads to major unrest in American streets. Uh, That not not that goes more to just people coming out and protesting, because the the president's support base is not in urban centers. That's generally uh, they generally vote Democratic. So it's people coming out into the streets to protest and it getting out of control. And within, then we have this mix of individuals from the violent far right and the far left. And we see, we see them go from standing off against each other, largely with melee weapons like hammers and fists, and we see them escalate to firearms, explosives, and incendiary devices. And we've had a lot of standoffs and people shooting paintball guns at each other or spraying bear spray but not a lot of fatalities. That certainly could change. I think that's my nightmare scenario. It's like Charlottesville, Virginia on steroids. How likely is that? I would say it's probably unlikely, but possible. Um, I think, you know, what is also probably possible is uh, with a Democratic victory that we see individuals, and you can already see the way people have characterized this election as a U.S. I mean, this is, this is uh, there's, there's, there's no fact in this accusation that the U.S. becomes a Marxist or communist state. But we've seen people on the extreme right try to characterize a democratic victory along these lines. That we could see a growth in uh, militia, white supremacist organizations, and others on the violent far right involved in attacks. Much like what we saw the plot against the Michigan governor and the subsequent plot also against the Virginia governor. Those are possible if not likely. And regardless of who is elected president, this problem isn't going away? No, I don't think it's going away. I think we've got there are too many things that have come together right now with COVID that's likely to continue, with polarization that's uh, likely going to continue, with an economic downturn that's likely to continue. And on top of that, the predominant weapon we've seen used by domestic terrorists has been uh, firearms and firearms sales right now are at an all-time high in 2020. I think one of the issues we'll watch is to what degree we see domestic uh, terrorist structures start to form groups the way we saw in the 1960s and the 70s. Uh, the Black Liberation Army, the Weather Underground, the Order, the Covenant, the Sword, the Arm of the Lord. The U.S. starts moving into organized groups. That's That'll put the U.S. in a very different uh, picture, much more dangerous one. 
That is Dr. Seth Jones. And that is this Q&A special from Washington, D.C. Thank you for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou ia koutou karere. Thank you for your contributions today. Thanks, as always, to the wonderful Q&A team. And I want to give a particular thanks this week to my colleague, cameraman Chris Brown, who has but for a couple of minutes filmed every single frame of today's programme, as well as agreeing to travel in these inherently risky times. Don't forget to tune in for the One News US election special this Wednesday. I will be outside Joe. Biden's uh, Democrat headquarters and One News US correspondent Anna Burns Francis will be live outside Donald Trump's HQ. Kumutu, that is us. Hey, Tera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. QA is made with the support of New Zealand on here.